welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Ten years ago this week, international news headlines were dominated by the Georgia-Russian War. Regarded as the first European war of the 21st century, and also, it can be argued, a key moment in Vladimir Putin's development of a more assertive and even belligerent Russia on the world stage. Daniel McLaughlin will be on shortly to remind us what the war was about and discuss its ongoing ramifications. But we're talking German politics first, and Derek Scally, our correspondent in Berlin, is on the line now. Derek, I'd like to start by picking up on a piece you wrote at the weekend about a political event in Bavaria last week that tells us a lot about the way German politics is changing in ways that would have seemed highly improbable in the very recent past. You reported on a speech that, in sentiment and tone, might well have been made by Donald Trump or Nigel Farage or Viktor Orban or any other right-wing populist leader you care to mention, but it was in fact delivered by Germany's interior minister, Horst Seehofer. What was the event and, and what did he have to say? Yes, indeed, it was quite a remarkable speech. Horst Seehofer is the leading politician in Bavaria and uh, he's the head of the Christian Social Union. Now that's the CSU and they're Angela Merkel's Bavarian allies. And uh, they are traditionally more conservative than Angela Merkel, but, you know, in the greater scheme of European politics, quite a mainstream party. But uh, they're running scared because they have an election there in October and there's a a new hard right party uh, in Germany, some would say far right, uh, called the Alternative for Deutschland. And they're coming up on their outer right hand flank. So this party to try and scare, to shake off this party has sort of uh, taken on their tone, taken on their clothes. And Horst Seehofer, who you might remember uh, in recent weeks has been sort of taking a very tough line on immigration and driving the, the government in Berlin almost to the brink, he gave a speech where he said, you know, it was basically a take no prisoners address. You know, he was attacking, you know, migrants who are criminals or rapists and uh, tirade against fake news and distorting everything he said. And um, it was definitely the sound of somebody trying out a new tone to see how it goes down. It seems to go down well, very well with the beer drinking supporters there in Bavaria. Area, but it does. It shows a sign, a sign that uh, the tone is changing in Germany, as it is in in in, in Europe and around the world. A sort of a, a rougher tone, uh, a less, uh, a more belligerent tone, and far less diplomatic. Perhaps it's the Donald Trump effect. Perhaps it's a social media effect, or the, in in Germany, just uh, in Europe, uh, as in Germany, just this shift towards the right and the you know testing out new border, new new uh, limits on what can be said, particularly about minorities. And uh, it's certainly an Interesting, an interesting turn of events. And the, the, the Trump echoes were remarkable. I mean, not just the fake news, but he even promised in his speech to communicate, communicate in future directly with voters via Twitter. Indeed, German politicians have been very slow to take up Twitter. I mean, Angela Merkel doesn't tweet, uh, her spokesman does, but in a very straightforward way. There's no real back and forth the way you would see, let's say, in other countries. Uh, Angela Merkel has never been near Twitter. I don't know if she emails. Um, So for a German politician to say they're taking to Twitter, a lot of other smaller, less important German politicians are on Twitter, but uh, nobody's really mastered it in terms of uh, generating news cycles the way uh, Donald Trump has here. So if Donald Trump, if, if Horst Seehofer, this Bavarian guy, says he wants to do it, suggests, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they, they've come late to the party, but they feel this is neat, this is worth happening, and it's all just part of a of a sort of a. a 
move away from the centre, I think, because uh, German politics really has been won and lost in the Merkel era in the centre. She's very much a centrist party person. She moved her party, the Conservative CDU, into the centre. Uh, but there are many people who feel that's neglected uh, the Conservative end of their uh, vote. And uh, somebody like Mr. Seehofer, who's only, uh, he can only run in the state of Bavaria down in the Germany south, but there's many other people in other parts of the country who would be a Merkel supporter, but they'd say, well, we'd, write, we'd r- much rather this sort of Seehofer conservative, even uh, hard right tone. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that happens, uh, if this is just a one-off for this state election, as I said, that's coming up in, in October, or if we're seeing a shift in German politics generally. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, Derek, what you think about that. How much of Seehofer's, say, his, his speech that we just discussed and his recent actions in, in forcing a harder line in the, a harder line by the federal government on immigration. How much of all of that do you think is driven by this state election and you know, can we expect maybe a certain amount of normality to return afterwards? Well, I think a certain amount of, uh, it's, it's only unusual that things would change again. We've had with Merkel a very, I mean, she's been she's been in power since 2005. Uh, this is her fourth term. Three of those four terms uh, have been grand coalitions, which is, you know, you get the two largest parties into government uh, and you kind of squash any kind of opposition. So there really hasn't been much, uh, by the way, of political debate. Uh, when you have all the largest parties in power together, there isn't much of a strong opposition. So Politically, it's been a centrist, uh, and from the tone, it's been very moderate. So probably what we're seeing, given what's happening elsewhere in the world, we're just starting to see a shift away from that. Angela Merkel is probably into her final act, and there's young politicians coming along looking to differentiate themselves from her and from what's gone before. So um, while Mr. Seehofer is in his late 60s, he wouldn't be considered a young gun. There's definitely a lot of young guns who consider themselves, you know, the the the, the generation to the the heir generation to Merkel. Uh, they say, uh, you know, this is a new era, you need to be snappy, you need to be a little punchy, perhaps a little bit insulting, uh, and that's what voters expect, that's what works on social media, and that's what we should be we should be doing more of. But uh, there's many people in Germany who are worried about that because um, that, that the pendulum will swing too far, and this often happens in German politics, you go from one extreme to the other, and that suddenly you'll have, a, you'll have something like in Austria, where you have... Um, politicians who sort of get used to, to the, um, I would call it like the populist steroids of xenophobia, that if you if you ride around on the back of some uh, minority, whether it's uh, foreigners or Muslims or something, uh, that it, it really yields very quick results. You get a spike in, in your returns and in, in your opinion polls. Uh, and well, I hope m- many people would say Germany has been immu- immunized against that because of its history. Some people aren't so sure because this AfD party uh, that has come along in the last five years, and they've got, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the vote with a very sort of Trumpian sort of sound, uh, similar to what you hear elsewhere in Europe. So maybe Germany isn't so immune to populism, to extremes, uh, as we thought. And what's the t- state of play in the Bavarian election, Derek? Uh, do we know, is Seehofer's harder line, is it working or how much of a threat does the AFD pose uh, to the CSU? Uh, it poses a threat in that they, uh, the, the Bavarians have, the CSU have a... Have a, have a um, they don't need a coalition partner. They have an absolute majority, and that's how they like it. They they consider themselves we are Bavaria. So uh, any any time they have had to do coalitions in the past, it's only been very very rarely. They've been in power since pretty much since the Second World War. Uh, it, it, they don't like doing coalitions, and uh, anyone who has to si- sign up for a coalition is considered politically weak. So the AfD is determined to pull away the hard right vote from them, and it's looking like they will succeed. It's looking like they'll get into parliament. It's looking like the Bavarians, despite all of their ranting and raving will need a new 
uh, a coalition partner. But the trouble is, by talking like this, most of the potential coalition partners are put right off because they all say you can't beat a populist by being populist. Uh, they will vote for the original, not for a copy. So it's a very interesting time in German politics. It's almost like a, a laboratory. Bavaria has always been different. What happens in Bavaria won't necessarily be repeated elsewhere, but it's certainly everyone will be watching to see can a mainstream party uh, pull back in uh, the, the conservatives, but also, let's say, the more populist fringe, right-wing fringes from a populist party, or if once they're lost, they're lost. And can you remind us, Derek, what kind of party the AFD is? Is, is it a typically anti-immigration, sort of anti-EU populist party? I mean, how would it compare, say, uh, to other populist parties in Europe? Yeah, I mean, if, if I was an AFD politician, I would say I'd be, we're being portrayed in the media as an anti-immigrant party, which isn't true. We're a catch-all party. We're trying to build ourselves up uh, on, on everything from, you know, welfare, labour law, um, you know, family policy, uh, but that law and order seems to be uh, where the AFD have put, struck gold. They started life five years ago as a Euro, an anti-bailout party. Uh, they felt the Euro and Germany's position in the Euro was untenable. Uh, they thought, you know, giving bailouts to Greece, to Ireland and other countries was a hiding to nothing. It would come back and uh, it would come back and haunt everyone. But as you know, the euro didn't fall apart. Greece is exiting its bailout. You know, there's still huge debt and there's still huge problems. But uh, that didn't work. So it was only when the euro, uh, when the refugee crisis came in 2015, the AFD, which was at this point was a fading force, uh, it was down around five, six, seven percent. They leapt onto that, and they uh, they they really tried a very bold experiment. Can we be? Um, can we be xenophobic? Can we stir up angst? Can we can we uh, appeal to people's lower instincts? And it appears to be working. Uh, it must be said. I mean, the, the the mainstream has given them quite a lot to work with. The refugee crisis was a huge challenge. Much of it went well. Uh, a lot of it, uh, some of it didn't. And uh, there have been, of course, terrorist attacks. And uh, if you're talking, it, it, most most populist parties they find a minority and they talk about it all the time. And that's what they've managed to do with refugees, asylum seekers, you know, criminals asylum seekers create this association in people's minds so that even if the vast majority of people who came to Germany in 2015 and 16 are not out robbing and raping, uh, you create a mood in people's minds that they could be. And uh, and that's been quite successful. And I think that has definitely changed the tone of German politics. German politics is quite civilized compared to most of the European countries. People don't insult each other. People don't um, slag each other off. But definitely with the AFD there, the attacks on the AFD uh, and CFD has been giving back as good as it gets. So I think Germany, you could say, if you're taking the long-term view, Germany politics after decades of the post-war era is just becoming like another European country. I don't think it'll ever be completely another European country. This will always be the country of the Holocaust. This will always be the country of, the, of Hitler and the Nazis. So there's a huge cohort of people who are horrified by all this and a huge cohort of people who are very sensitive to this. But the dog whistle seems to be working with, um, you know, with 13 to 15% of the population. And how is the AFD seen to be performing in the Bundestag, where it is now effectively the main party of opposition? Yeah, what's happened is very interesting. They have... Um They've had to learn very, very quickly. I mean, just from a from a strict uh, administrative point of view, they had to hit the ground running. And uh, from a from a publicity perspective, they are performing very well. They're always in the papers. They're always causing stirs and getting people to react to them, so that they're starting new cycles. From friends I know who work uh, with politicians in committees and so on, they're not so good. Um, and that you know, the real hard work of of, uh, of any parliament, as as any politician will tell you, tends not to happen in the in the parliamentary 
chamber it's it's all the backroom work it's coming up with policy it's coming up with compromises and in that front the AFD really aren't performing very well unfortunately journalists tend not to focus on that they tend to focus on the fireworks in the parliamentary chamber so uh, until that other the, other journalists Derek I'm sure of course of course but until until the sort of I won't say incompetence you could call it inexperience of the AFD they, they don't seem to be willing to learn they don't seem to be willing to compromise they don't seem to understand uh, you know how, how parliamentary work uh, functions uh, if that starts to come out I think people might be slightly less impressed but for now um, they've certainly held their own um, in a very hostile environment uh, and they have definitely changed uh, the shape and the face and the tone of German politics in a very short time. So while the centre faces this challenge from the right, the AFD, which has been discussing, Derek, and now there's a new challenger emerging um, from the left with the launch of a new movement. You can correct, correct my pronunciation, but Austen or Arise. Tell us something about this movement or our party. What is it? Yes, it's really interesting. I mean, it's just another sign that the centre in Germany is starting to wobble and the fringes are the places to look at in German politics. Aufstehen, uh, which is you know the verb to get up or the, the term arise, it's a, it's a left-wing uh, movement. We're all into movements these days. Nobody seems to believe in political parties anymore. It's all about movements. It's a left-wing movement put together by a woman called Zara Wagenknecht. Now, she's one of the most prominent leaders of the left party. That's the post-communist uh, inheritance of the East German Communist Party. So they're a left-wing, hard-left socialist party. And um, she sees herself in the uh, tradition of um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, or even Bernie Sanders, that how do we get young people and people who are dis- disengaged with politics, how do we get them back in? We engage them, we listen to what they want, we listen to what is important to them, and then we come up with a policy, and then we try and find the right political home for it. Now, she hopes it would be her party, the left party, but many people in the left party don't like this idea of a new movement coming up, you know, like a focus group coming up with new things and pressuring the political scene. But as uh, she says, well, look, we've got left-wing parties, we've got a left party, party in Germany. We've got Social Democrats, ostensibly a centre-left party. Uh, we have the Greens, which with Green, uh, with left party uh, roots, or left roots. Uh, and she says, we're struggling. She says, we're living in a time when people want left policies. They want a fairer society. They want better wages. They want livable salaries and, and pensions they can live off. They want a house or an apartment they can afford. She says, how can it be that all of these, you know, this, the cry is for social justice and the centre-right and neoliberalism is still riding around uh, like uh, like there was no competition. So, so her idea is that uh, the left is engaging in the wrong way with voters. They're just sort of giving lots of lip service to talking about people's concerns and not actually delivering. So how this will work, we don't know. She's literally just launched a website now and the official launch will be in a month's time. But it's certainly got a lot of attention, partly to do with it being the silly season and there's not much other politics going on. But it's interesting because she seems to have picked up on what's happening in other countries that... Uh, if you are a party and you're just talking about people's concerns and you know, or we're having listening exercises and then go off and do the policies you plan to do anyway. Um, but it probably can't hurt because the, the centre-left in Germany, I mean, they, they, there were many years where they had a majority here and they, they never were able to work together. They never seemed to find, you know, history was in the way or the personalities were in the way. So maybe in this way she can come up with policies, you know, whether it's on housing or whether it's on uh, labour law or trying to make, um, you know, precarious employment and um, coming up with proposals from outside you know from left field as it were uh, maybe this will will shake things up uh, it's certainly it's certainly gone down 
in an interesting fashion. Lots of people on the left are, are terrified that this is yet another attempt to split the left even further, uh, which of course has a historical precedent, uh, particularly in Germany. Uh, but other people are saying, well, let's give it a go. She's quite a striking figure, Sarah Wagenknecht. She, um, she's married to Oscar Lafontaine, who uh, was once dubbed by the Sun the most dangerous man in Europe. He was once the Social Democrat leader, and then he became finance minister under Gerhard Schröder. He walked out when he realized that Gerhard Schröder was following Tony Blair down a third way, and he felt that was the betrayal of social democracy and the left. So he's in there. Uh, so it, this may just be a, a sort of a re revenge thing by him, but uh, it's certainly an interesting departure. And if it's, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, these kind of movements have picked up steam in, in France and in the US and elsewhere. Uh, why not in Germany? Indeed, and, and, and including Emmanuel Macron, of course, who launched his own his own movement. But do we know, um, Derek, when you say a movement, do they intend to operate as a pressure group to try to force the existing left-wing parties to adopt even more left-wing policies? Or do they intend to enter the political fray themselves? And no, that's it. It's, a, it's a pressure group. I mean, she's still, this is the interesting thing, like she's still in a political party. People are saying she's trying to have her cake and eat it, but she is trying to uh, pressure movement. She wants to say, right, we've got left-wing policies that we think will work for, let's say, housing. Who's into doing this? And if you're not up for this, why aren't you? And almost like name and shame the parties who talk left but don't do left. Uh, and I think that's certainly going to be interesting, the dynamic. Uh, she's a bit of a problematic figure in her in her day, in her youth. She was, um, you know, she's one of these people who sort of bemoans the fall of the Berlin Wall, at least when she was young. You know, she would have been considered a Stalinist in her early days. She's mellowed since then, but many people still think of her as a problem um, and uh, she would be a sort of a problem brand. But on the other hand, she's extremely interesting. She's very, very intelligent. And uh, pe lots of people I know love listening to her because she's an old school politician who actually has, sense, has things to say. Um, so it'll be interesting if she can shake things up. I mean, if anything, the left really needs to be shaken up. I mean, the Social Democrats are in power with Merkel again, and they're just uh, drifting along. They're supposed to be reforming themselves. The left party is just drifting along, and the Greens are not quite sure if they're fish or fowl, if they're, they're going to be working on the left or if they're going to be propping up Merkel next time around. So uh, this might sort of separate the, the men from the boys or the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Uh, and it will certainly, uh, it's an attempt, I suppose, with this grand coalition, again, as I mentioned at the start, where there isn't really much political debate about concepts, about ideas. Everything is just sort of consensual in the middle. Um, just like Horst Seehofer is livening things up on the right, maybe this will liven things up on the left. And uh, and a little, a little bit of friction creating, generating a bit of warmth, that can't be bad for a democracy. Okay, and Derek, just finally to, to wrap things on a slightly lighter note, something else you've written about in the last uh, few days. Um, Angela Merkel herself was at the centre of some media speculation. She went off on her holidays and, and nobody knew where she was for a bit. Well, I'm sure her, her staff knew where she was, but Angela Merkel is a creature of habit. She does the same thing everywhere, every year. I mean, she's almost a security risk. She does so many things so often at exactly the same time. She used to go down to the mountains, down to Sutterhall, to the Dolomites, and you could set your clock by, oh, there's Angela Merkel walking, there's Angela Merkel in the ski lift, there's Angela Merkel in the hotel. And this year she just was absent without leave, it seems. The newspapers went mad for a few days. Uh, it turns out she was just doing her own thing. She changed her plans. She's, got, she's a huge opera fan. So she was going to Wagner in Munich and in Bayreuth at the big Wagner festival, uh, meeting a few friends. I think she's turned up again, so uh, she hasn't she hasn't disappeared. There isn't a marital crisis. I don't think she's taken a lover. Um, you know, so it's business as usual. But it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's almost amusing uh, how how staid people are used to having their German leader, and uh, when she goes a little bit off off uh, off schedule, that everyone goes mad. But you know, I think she's back back in the back in the saddle again. Derek, we'll, we'll finish on that reassuring note. Thanks a lot for that. Thank you.
That was Derek Scally, our Berlin correspondent. And now to that Very story I mentioned at the outset. Today, again, Tuesday, Georgia is marking the 10th anniversary of the outbreak of its war with Russia over the breakaway Georgian region of South Ossetia. It was a short war lasting just days, but its repercussions continue to be felt today. Daniel McLaughlin, our Eastern European correspondent, is on the line now. Dan, take us back first to August 2008. What triggered this outbreak of hostilities between Georgia and Russia? Well, for several weeks leading up to August the 7th, there'd been an intensification of, of hostilities around South Ossetia. Um, if we go back a little bit further, uh, just to give a bit of background on the region, in the early 90s, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, South Ossetia broke away from, from um, Tbilisi's rule, along with another separatist region in, in Georgia called Abkhazia. Um, and up until 2008, they, they'd essentially run their own affairs independent of Tbilisi, but with lots of support politically, uh, militarily, and financially from Moscow. So if we go back to 2008 in the summer, um, there was increasing um, there were increasing skirmishes around South Ossetia, mortar fire in the evenings and overnight, um, and a feeling that tension was building um, until we got to a point on uh, August the seventh, uh, and, and the the uh, exact events are still hotly disputed by by both sides. But on the night of August the seventh, Georgian forces launched a heavy artillery assault on Skinvali. That's the capital of South Ossetia, the separatist capital there, um, and started moving troops forward into the region. What was, and the president at the time was, was Mikhail Saakashvili, what was his justification for taking that action against South Ossetia at that time? Saakashvili claimed at the time and, and still insists today that uh, he was responding to the arrival of Russian regular forces into South Ossetia. Um, he says that they came through the um, through the tunnel linking Georgia with with linking South Ossetia and Georgian territory with Russia, um, and they came in huge force. He says that once he saw that, he got intelligence reports on that. He launched an all-out assault on the region to hold the Russians back. Now, the South Ossetians themselves say that um, the uh, the attack by Georgia, as they call it, was largely unprovoked. Uh, and Russia also supports this view. They say that they only sent their troops into South Ossetia to defend Russian citizens on the ground and Russian peacekeepers who were there on the ground. Um, one of the uh, issues of dispute leading up to, to the conflict was Russia's distribution of lots and lots of Russian passports to South Ossetians, so eff effectively turning them into Russian citizens. Georgia says this was simply preparing the ground for this uh, for this war because um, Russia could stage provocations and then claim that Russian citizens were in danger. So that was the situation on the ground at the time, absolutely conflicting views as to what caused it and, and how justified it was. Um, and those disputes and differences continue to this day. But I guess underlining all of this, I suppose, was, was Russia's concern was it about Georgia's sort of pivot towards the West and the possibility it might join NATO and, and, and so on. Absolutely. Um, and this also tracks back uh, to the to the early 90s and those conflicts that we talked about briefly before, conflicts that flared up around the Soviet Union. We also had uh, things going on in Central Asia, in Tajikistan. We had things in, uh, we had a a conflict in, in Moldova. We had a conflict in uh, Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, in all these areas, um, Russia was involved and was effectively trying to retain uh, a lever over the independent states that emerged after 
the collapse of the Soviet Union. In Georgia's case, there was a very, very dramatic change in 2003 when the Rose Revolution took place, as it was called, and Mikhail Saakashvili and his team of strongly pro-Western reformers took over Georgia. And they immediately said, look, uh, we don't want to be dominated by Russia anymore. We are changing Georgia's strategic direction. We want to move towards the European Union and NATO. This immediately set off very loud alarm bells in Russia. Um, and because the two sides, Georgia and Russia, uh, Georgia under Sekashvili, um, Russia under Putin and subsequently Medvedev as president, um, they didn't manage to come to terms on this. And uh, Georgia was pushing harder for NATO membership. NATO was suggesting that it was open to potential uh, Georgian membership of the alliance. Um, and that is the kind of geopolitical and security backdrop to what happened 10 years ago today. And so whoever started it and the circumstances um, of that are still in dispute. Uh, how did the war unfold then over the following days? With Georgian forces moving into South Ossetia and a huge Russian force coming in the other direction, uh, the Georgians were massively outnumbered. Uh, talking about approximate figures, the Georgians probably had about 10,000 regular troops. They had uh, several thousand kind of irregular militias as well. The Russians had tens of thousands of troops, possibly as many as 70, 80, 90,000 troops coming through into the region. Um, irregular forces also came through from uh, various Russian Caucasus republics, from Chechnya, from Dagestan on the other side of the Caucasus. And of course, you had the South Ossetian separatist militia there on the ground. Um, pretty quickly, the Russians got the upper hand. They did suffer some losses. The um, Georgian forces did manage to shoot, shoot down some Russian attack aircraft. Um, but the overwhelming uh, numerical superiority of the Russians ensured that after a couple of days, the Georgians were in retreat uh, and very hastily in retreat. Um, and the Russian forces did not stop um, at the de facto boundary between South Ossetia and the rest of Georgia. They pushed on deeper into Georgia. Um, they moved into cities like Gori, uh, cities like Poti on the Black Sea coast. They moved into Abkhazia itself. Um, and there was a fear at one point that they may even move on Tbilisi, the capital. They stopped around 40 kilometers from Tbilisi. That was as close as they got. Um, and at that point, uh, a great deal of Western diplomatic pressure was being applied to try and hold, black, hold back the Russians from the European Union and from the United States. Uh, and the diplomatic effort to um, institute a ceasefire was led by uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president at the time. And, and that was brought about after, uh, it, it lasted for five days, essentially, the, the, the fighting. It did. Um, and then Saakashvili managed to um, broker this, this peace deal. Um, and, and what um, kind of casualty uh, rate was there, Dan? Uh, how many people were killed? Roughly, um, roughly 800, 850 people were killed. And at the height, something like 200,000 people were displaced. Um, and the key things really were uh, in the aftermath. Um, this, this deal that was brokered by Sarkozy on behalf of the EU obliged Russia to uh, and Georgian forces to withdraw their troops to um, to the positions that they'd been in prior to the start of hostilities. Georgia did this, but Russia didn't do it. Um, Russia, in fact, uh, kept thousands of troops in South Ossetia, and it kept thousands of troops in Abkhazia, 
And crucially, two weeks after the deal was agreed, the ceasefire deal was agreed on August the 12th, Russia recognized the independence of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, something that the separatist authorities in both these regions had been calling for for more than a decade. Uh, and Russia finally did that in the aftermath of this conflict. And just before then, we come back to the, um, I suppose, the continuing ramifications of all of that. Um, the numbers, you, the disparity there in numbers between, you know, the Georgian forces and the Russian forces does make one ask the question again. Um, why did Saakashvili miscalculate so badly or did he miscalculate? Was he counting on some kind of Western intervention on, on Georgia's behalf? Um, that is one of the um, suggestions and one of the theories He'd certainly been given very strong support, um, particularly by the United States after the, the Rose Revolution. Um, there'd been met several visits by very um, high profile, top level people from the United States, um, people like Condoleezza Rice um, and, and other senior figures in the George W. Bush administration. Um, and they had been very strong advocates for Georgia's membership of NATO. Um, there is a feeling among people inside and outside Georgia that perhaps Saakashvili did miscalculate. I mean, if he really thought that America was going to get into a war with Russia at that time over Georgia, then it was a really appalling miscalculation. Um, just yesterday, um, Saakashvili wrote on, on his Facebook page, um, kind of going back over his thoughts of the time and his memories of 2008. He said that um, he didn't uh, fall for a Russian provocation, as he called it. He said this was an all-out invasion. And even though he knew that his forces were massively outnumbered and they could only uh, hold Russia back for a certain amount of time, it was the only thing he felt he could do. As the country's leader, as a patriot, he thought he had to do everything possible to hold back the Russian invasion. So he insists that he, he wasn't fooled by Russia um, and that he was going in in response to a Russian invasion. Um, on the, on the uh, Russian side, there have been interesting comments um, today from Dmitry Medvedev, who's now the Russian prime minister. Again, he was the president yes, 10 years ago. And, and Putin was the prime minister at the time. Yeah. That's right. Um, and Medvedev does say he puts the blame squarely on Saakashvili's shoulders. I mean, Russia has always tried to depict Saakashvili as somewhat unstable and unpredictable and a dangerous character. But he says this was outright aggression. Medvedev says this was a result of outright aggression by Saakashvili, but also perhaps a miscalculation because he said, um, Medvedev says that um, perhaps he did believe because he had been given such strong public support from the George W. Bush White House that he could count on America's support under any circumstances. Um, that didn't materialize in any other way than, um, than um, sort of logistical support and also strong diplomatic support. Um, and, and so the two sides, again, what, what, what Saakashvili's motivation was, we can only speculate. He insists that uh, he was just doing all he could with limited resources to defend his country. And Dan, was this the moment then when Vladimir Putin unleashed a newly assertive Russia on the world stage? I think it was a crucial moment, yes. Um, I mean, Putin had made clear and Medvedev had made clear that um, they saw NATO expansion as a threat um, and that they didn't like the so-called coloured revolutions, the pro-Western revolutions that had taken place in Georgia in 2003, in Ukraine in 2004, you had the Orange Revolution. Um, you had another movement, similar movement in um, 
in Kyrgyzstan even around that time. Um, so Putin was extremely hostile towards what he felt was this encroachment of Western political and military influence on what he still thought was Russia's sphere of influence. Now, it was a crucial moment, I think, because Georgia had in some ways led the way in confronting Russia in the Caucasus. Saakashvili made no secret of the fact that he, he wanted nothing to do with Russian influence and he was determined to join NATO and ultimately the European Union as well. Um, and this was a chance really for Putin to, um, to slap down a country and a leader that he saw as extremely anti-Russian and inimical to Russia's interests in the Caucasus and, and, and the wider region. And also at the same time, to show to other countries that thought that perhaps they could rely on Western support, even in the most difficult of circumstances, that there was a clear limit to that support, that the West was not going to come, despite strong rhetoric in support, was not going to come to the rescue of small nations in the Caucasus or elsewhere in the former Soviet Union when they were facing a confrontation with Russia. So Putin very, very clearly, and Medvedev at that time, even though Putin was still seen as the, as the top leader in Russia, even though he was serving as prime minister at the time, they made very clear the boundaries uh, for countries in Russia's neighborhood. Um, and subsequently, as lots of people are saying today, and some people even warned at the time that, uh, that other countries in the region would be in danger as a result. And people warned at the time that it could be Ukraine. People are saying today that we just have to look now, uh, 10 years on at what's been happening in Ukraine in recent years, to realize that Russia was making a strong statement at that time and was throwing down a challenge to the West. And because the West didn't really res respond strongly at that time to Georgia, it only emboldened Russia to take even more drastic action when it came to Ukraine in 2014. And on that point, I mean, many see a direct link between what happened in Georgia with the annexation of Crimea from, from Ukraine six years later. Um, that argument is being made, isn't it, that had the international community stood up more to Putin at that time, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been emboldened enough to take the actions he, he subsequently took in Ukraine. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that. Um, certainly Saakashvili is saying that. We've got uh, um, foreign ministers from the Baltic states and from Poland visiting Tbilisi today. They're also saying the same thing. Um, a deputy prime minister from Ukraine is in, is in Tbilisi today as well. And Ukraine obviously feels the same way. Um, I mean, it was a time back in 2008, shortly after uh, George W. Bush left power, Obama came in and set about uh, trying to reset relations with Russia. So um, in the wake of this war in Georgia, some uh, contacts, some political, diplomatic, military contacts between uh, Western states and NATO and Russia were severed, but they were pretty quickly restored. Um, and, and, and there was a feeling, and there still is a feeling now, and perhaps it's stronger now, that Russia wasn't made to pay a sufficient price at that time, 10 years ago. Um, and so it did feel that, to some extent, it would have a free hand uh, in Ukraine when it faced a similar situation as far as Russia saw it, um, in terms of a threat to, to, a, to a major strategic country within what Moscow sees as its sphere of influence, um, six years down the line in, in, in 2014 in Ukraine. So the argument is not so much that the West could have engaged somehow militarily with, with Russia at that time, which 
does seem quite far-fetched, but that subsequently, um, diplomatically, the West was too soft on Putin. Uh, that is a, a widespread feeling, and, and crucially, economically, too. Um, uh, there were no economic sanctions placed on Russia at the time. Um, the diplomatic measures kind of, kind of very quickly faded away. I mean, there was almost a feeling um, that because, and again, you could think that Russia perhaps played this very well at the time by escalating the situation in Georgia 10 years ago to a point where, where a lot of people actually feared that Russia could try and occupy Georgia entirely and move troops into Tbilisi. By backing down from that um, and accepting a ceasefire uh, five days into the war, um, there was a huge sigh, a collective sigh of relief from the West. I mean, almost to a point where they thought, well, okay, you know, this is a, a conciliatory measure from Russia. Um, and its initial aggression was at least partially forgiven because it didn't go further, take over Georgia and turn it into an even bigger crisis. Um, and the, 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 the military phase, the, the, uh, the peak military phase was over after five days. Um, so there was a feeling that, that, that the West kind of breathed a sigh of relief, took the ceasefire deal and sought very quickly with the start of the Obama presidency to, um, to try to reset relations and to try and get things off on, uh, on a fresh footing and, um, uh, uh, with Russia and try to, um, try to reestablish relations without really making it pay a great price for what it had done in Georgia. And finally, Dan, what are the what were the long term implications for Georgia itself? Because ten years down the road, it still has similar ambitions to join NATO and so on. But meanwhile, it has these two breakaway regions, essentially occupied by Russia, um, to deal with. So, what have been the long term consequences for for Georgia? That's right. Well, I mean, if we think about South Ossetia and Abkhazia, it does make up about a fifth of Georgia's territory, <clears throat> but it hadn't had de facto control over those regions since the early nineties. So it wasn't really, in practical terms, the fact that Russia recognized their statehood and, and very few countries, just a handful of countries around the world have, have done so, um, have supported Russia in doing that um, and have also recognized their, their independence. It, uh, Georgia hasn't suffered huge practical economic consequences as a result of Russia's move there. Um, but it did suffer... Um, economic consequences as a result of the invasion. There was a lot of uh, damage to infrastructure in major cities, which needed repairing, a lot of damage to transport infrastructure that needed to be repaired. Um, Georgia's armed forces uh, took a severe beating at Russia's hands, and they needed to be rebuilt, uh, partly with NATO's help. Um, but it has, over the years, gradually got those things back on track. Um, it also uh, lost, um, I mean, in, around, the, around that time and leading up to the war, because uh, as relations deteriorated with Russia, um, uh, Georgian exports to, to Russia suffered. Um, Russia put various trade embargoes on Georgia. So Georgia was forced to find new export markets for its products. And that forced, uh, forced it to diversify in a way that it wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, and um, in the Saakashvili time and then the subsequent, uh, the subsequent government that took over when Saakashvili and his party lost power in 2012, 2013, they've both been very pro-business. They've both been looking to open up um, Georgia to the West and to new markets. So the economy has recovered fairly well. Um, it still has problems with um, 
internally displaced people, both from the wars of the 1990s and from the 2008 war. Um, but as you mentioned there, the country is still determined to integrate with the West. It hasn't been knocked off that track. I mean, the government that it has now is looking to uh, certainly be less abrasive in its relations with Russia, but it hasn't uh, bent to Russia's will in any way. Um, it does still want to join the EU. It does still want to join NATO. Um, and it did sign a major trade and association agreement with the EU back in 2014, and it came into force in 2016. So Georgia is saying today um, that it will resist this continuing aggression, as it calls the Russian occupation, as it describes it as of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and it is determined to peacefully restore those areas to Georgian control and ultimately to still join the European Union and NATO at some point in the future. Well, Dan, that was a very interesting look back on those events of 10 years ago and their continuing ramifications today. Thanks a lot for that. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.